Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology. Um, now, later on in the program, if you'd like to ask questions, you can dial 347-637-2631, and then I will prompt you at the end of the show how to access the questions. Um, today is a very exciting show that we're talking to Dr. Paul Richardson. Um, I just spoke with him a few seconds ago, and he may be delayed slightly in the cl- because of the clinic. So um, we are going to go ahead and give an introduction for him, and when he is ready, he will push uh, one on his keypad so I know that he is on the program. Um, so it's we have been working really hard this summer and uh, to show a pro- product called Helltree, and we've now been to 37 cities in the United States. Um, we have we are now coming to the East Coast, and look forward to doing that uh, throughout the late summer and then into the fall. So keep watching on the MyelomaCrowd.org forward slash Helltree page to see where those meetings are going to be held. Helltree is a software tool that I wanted when I was diagnosed. Um, in looking at the landscape of myeloma care, not everybody has access to a specialist like Dr. Richardson. And uh, it's really important. Several studies have come out now showing that patients live longer when they're seen by a myeloma specialist. Uh, a University of North Carolina study showed that patients who were seen by a myeloma specialist within the first year of diagnosis actually live 39% longer. And I think if there were a drug helping us live 39% longer, we would all be taking it. The Mayo Clinic also did a study showing similar impact for centers that um, treat more than over even 10 patients. It really makes a difference in your care to have a specialist on board. So what we're trying to do with HealthTree is provide three different benefits. Number one is help patients understand the most um, advantageous and recent and latest therapies that are available to them really at every stage of their disease. So whether you're newly diagnosed or whether you're relapsed or refractory to different drugs, what options do you have in terms of treatment? Similarly, um, trying to find clinical trials. So we've integrated this HealthTree product with SparkCures, and many of you are familiar with it. Our last show was with Brian McMahon on SparkCures to understand all your treatment options, so not just treatment options that are available in the clinic, but also treatment options um, that are in clinical trials at centers that could be anywhere close to you, but even those that are um, some distance from you. The third benefit of using HealthTree is that we're all, as a whole community of myeloma patients, contributing to myeloma research. 
it's very difficult to aggregate patient data because if you ask a facility to do it, um, it's you know they they're they're protected by they want to protect the data because of HIPAA laws, and if you um, it's just a very difficult thing to be able to share data. So when patient we as patients decide that we can collaborate our data and help the research community take a look at it in an anonymized way. Um, we can really make some major advances and help the research community cure us faster. So with that, um, I would like to give an introduction to Dr. Richardson. And Dr. Richardson, if you're on the line, please press 1 on your keypad. Um, Dr. Paul Richardson is the Clinical Program Leader and Director of Clinical Research of the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center. Dr. Richardson is also the Dr. R.J. Corman Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Richardson holds leadership positions in many professional organizations and is on the editorial board of the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Oncology, The Oncologist, Clinical Cancer Research, and British Journal of Hematology. He's the prior chairman of the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium and serves on the steering committees, and now he chairs the newly formed Multiple Myeloma Committee for the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology. His honors include many awards from Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's, his honors in, oh, uh, and Dana-Farber Partners in Excellence Awards, the Brigham and Women's Hospital um, Teaching Scholar Award, the Tisch Outstanding Achievement Award for Clinical Research, and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's George Canellis Award for Excellence in Clinical Research and Patient Care. He also was awarded primarily for myeloma work an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Physicians in 2009 and the recipient of the Warren Alpert Prize in 2012. Dr. Richardson has published more than 260 original papers as author, co-author, or co-author in more than 180 reviews, chapters, and editorials in learning peer-reviewed journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, Blood, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Leukemia, and many more. He's a key contributor in constructing and implementing clinical trials both early and later stage, and his primary research interest is in new therapies. He was a leader in the clinical development of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and pomalidomide. So Dr. Richardson, if you're on the line, please press one on your keypad. And um, while we're waiting for Dr. Richardson, sometimes this happens when they're busy in the clinic taking care of patients. And um, while we're waiting for him, I'd like to just share a little bit more about why we decided to do the HealthTree product. Um, in terms of in terms of uh, finding a cure for multiple myeloma, there are many rich, many researchers like Dr. Richardson who are working very hard for us. And um, Dr. Richardson specifically helps bring these new therapies into the clinic and has been really a key um, driver of running large-scale clinical trials, which is key and important for development of new drugs. Um, but as we look at how to apply currently available treatments in the clinic appropriately, the experts know very in a very sophisticated way how to do this. Um, they're very savvy because they see 
hundreds of patients on an annual basis. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I was seen by first a general oncologist, and the protocol that he wanted to use was um, probably two to three years behind what the norm was if you had gone to a specialist. Now that we've been to um, so many cities across the country, it's been fascinating to see your experience because everyone's myeloma experience is just unique and different. Um, we've seen now patients in rural communities and big cities. Uh, we've seen patients who have never seen a specialist and patients who consult with a specialist and patients who go to a specialist. Uh, we've seen um, many different ethnicities and um, tech-savvy patients and patients who are unfamiliar with the tech. And it's been an amazing experience to get to know you as as patients and understand better your myeloma journey. What I would like to see as a patient in doing this project is I want to see patients that look similar to me with maybe some similar genetic features and to see what they did for treatment and to see what the outcomes were. Because if we can see this as patients um, and then combine it with expertise from the myeloma specialists, we'll be able to identify um, patients who are being cured um, many of the myeloma researchers that I've spoken to say that a percent, certain percentage of myeloma patients are being cured. And it may be small, it may be like 10 or 15%, but it's really important to know who and why and, um, you know, what, what are the features? Why are people getting better outcomes? Sometimes it could be just the nature of the disease and sometimes it could be um, other factors that we just aren't aware of yet. So that's what we're really working to accomplish in creating this HealthTree product. I'm really pleased to announce that we are almost to 500 patients in the system. If you would like uh, help on this, we will develop, be developing a new program called the Myeloma Coach Program, and uh, we'll, which will provide one-on-one -on -one help, similarly to how we're doing this in these HealthTree workshops across the country because we realize there's a wide range of support that people need to be able to use this tool. And we've done this, we've decided to do this in a very, um, it, we, we realized that it was very important to do this in a system where um, it was safe and protected with the patient data, that it was using anonymized data and that uh, we together as patients are all contributing to help one another. And sometimes patients ask, well, if I've had a really good outcome with a very long remission time, should I participate? And the answer is yes, you should participate uh, because your story could help inform someone else on their journey. I've had other people say, I really enjoy using HealthTree because it's a place where I can put all of my information in one place. Um, and we're now working on pulling lab value data from uh, the labs and being able to integrate that into the system. So you could collect and gather all of your labs into one place, as well as your things like your treatment history and your prior um, outcomes and your side effects. It's been fascinating to go and talk to different um, organizations and doctors, and I've shown this now to probably 25 different uh, myeloma doctors in a demo and their eyes get wide and they appreciate what is um, 
what we're doing because it would help inform them, especially because many myeloma patients um, go and attend and, and see a variety of doctors. They might go to a specialist for some of their labs, and then they might go to another doctor locally and get all of the rest of their labs performed. So now they have things in two places, and sometimes there is an online portal, and sometimes there's no portal, and sometimes it's all in paper format. So let's see. Dr. Richardson, if you're on the phone, please press 1 on your keypad, and we'll see if he's on. And I apologize for the delay, but sometimes this just cannot be helped. <laughs> well, in the meantime, I will, I'd like to just share a little bit more um, about what we talk about when we um, host the Health Tree workshops and a little more about those while we're waiting for him. Um, we've been to a variety of cities, as I mentioned, and in these cities we sit down and work with patients to help them understand the tool. So there's, um, it's not a difficult or a challenge for them. Um, one of the reasons that we decided to do this inside of a nonprofit was that because we didn't want there to be any, um, any motivation, I guess, to do anything that was misaligned with um, just finding a cure for us as patients. So in doing this project, my husband and I um, decided to do this, actually had the thought to do this many years ago. And um, my husband's brother had passed away from leukemia. And after that experience with his leukemia, we realized what not to do uh, when going through a cancer experience. And we didn't ask questions. Uh, we weren't prepared as a family um, we watched him go through that very challenging and difficult experience. And it was about 12 months from the time he was diagnosed till the time he passed away. And it became really evident that we needed to um, have more information when we were navigating his care. So when I was diagnosed five years later and we were in the same hospital getting similar advice, um, like delay a transplant and things like that, um, we decided to approach this radically differently. And when we did that, we decided to be very educated about our care. Um, we decided to, um, and, and have this hypothesis that data was an important piece of it. So as we've created this product, we decided that uh, it was most important that it would be uh, building to build trust um, with our peers as myeloma patients. This had to be a system that was based on trust. And so we have done everything in our power um, to do that. I don't take a salary and haven't for the last eight years since I have, uh, or six years since I've started the Myeloma Crowd and won't because um, it would be my dream one day to have a cure for myeloma and be able to shut it down and um, have us go on our way and do the things that we would love to be doing in this life that are not myeloma-related. I think we all feel that way as patients. Um, so we've 
we've tried we tried not to do this project. Uh, we contacted other myeloma foundations to see if they'd be interested in doing it. Uh, we contacted pharmaceutical companies to see if they could do it, and they cannot. Um, we've talked to individuals, individual researchers, at their institutions. And uh, because they can't share patient data, they weren't in a position to do it. So after talking to um, many groups, like including the IBM Watson team and Google Health and Microsoft Health Vault and others that you would think could work on a project like this, we really made a determination that we would have to do it ourselves. Um, we have, on these in these workshops, we have, we've crossed the country it's been fascinating, and we've continued to improve the product. We listen every time we go. Uh, we iterate every time we go. And um, and the product is becoming better, thanks to all of you. And I just have to say how grateful I am uh, for that. So I'm going to put this on pause for one second because I'm getting a phone call. Um, just a minute. Dr. Richardson, are you on the line? Uh, I most certainly am, and I'm so sorry, uh, Jenny. I've been on the oh, call since eleven, 11 about five minutes past eleven. Just uh, coming <laughs> straight. But I, I kept well, I'm sorry that you had to listen to me then, <laughs> because people wanted to listen to you and not to me. So for some reason, it did not show you as being in the studio. So. I'm thrilled that you're here, and uh, we are excited to have you. So I'm I'm so thrilled that you're on the line. So thank you. Let's go ahead with the program because I've given an introduction for you and more than people probably want to hear about Health Tree. <laughs> I just heard your, your very kind introduction, and when you were uh, uh, doing those love bio, I just I, I think that bio was a little bit uh, a few years old. I just wanted to especially acknowledge one award, which. Uh, you didn't mention it's just because it reflects patience and it's just so close to me is the Robert Kyle Lifetime Achievement Award in myeloma which is oh, really wonderful to reflect um, patient care no that my simple reason for mentioning it is because I just want to acknowledge the IMF in particular as well as of course our, our wonderful partnership with the MMRF but at the same time the IMF and in particular the, the Robert Kyle Award which my team actually uh, received on my behalf in, in at the IMF meeting um, in, in Madrid um, about a year or so ago, and I think that it's just because it's so patient, it's it's totally focused on the patient, and that to me was the the, the you know for me personally was the most important uh, um, uh, you know I was an enormous honor to receive that. So I just wanted to add that. But having said all of that, I, I just uh, and it was also lovely that my team you know received it in my in, in on my behalf. Um, Jenny, I'm so sorry for the confusion on the connection. We were on two different lines, and I, I think the line I was hearing you on, I was hitting the number one to try and let you know I was on, and the other one wasn't connecting. But not to worry. Um, we're at almost 11.20, and I know you've got an hour of radio time approximately. I'm happy to make it up if we need to run across over the noon hour. Um, so that's absolutely fine. But if, if I can take my lead from you, Jenny, as to how you would like to uh, to, 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 to conduct the uh, conduct the discussion this morning. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I've had people say that you are a living angel. So I just, in mention of that award, I really believe that um, there are many, many caring myeloma specialists. And 
that's why I, I feel so strongly that patients need to see people like you because the expertise that you have but the concern you have for, for patients is really unparalleled. So just thank you for everything you do. Um, why don't we start we by talking about that this idea is just the mid, mid-year advances in multiple myeloma. You know, I was talking to another doctor who said, you know, I could I used to be able to go to uh, myeloma updates every two years, and I can't do that anymore. It's at least every six months. So this is our six-month update, um, and the last one we had was really around ASH. There have been many major meetings, like the EHA meeting or the European Hematology meeting and the ASCO meeting in June, and other meetings, BMT meetings and things like that. So maybe we want to have you give an overview for the type of patient first, smoldering myeloma, newly diagnosed, first relapsed, or heavily relapsed. And then let's talk about the individual different types of technologies, and maybe we'll cover that while you're talking about those particular things. No, absolutely, Jenny. And you, you, you make me blush with that comment. I'm, I'm far from it, but I just, you know, just will say one thing. I'm blessed to work with a fabulous team, and in particular my nursing colleagues as well as my physician colleagues, and we're, as a result of that, able to, to God willing, provide the best we possibly can for, for our patients. Um, but thank you. Very kind words. Um, the... the, the uh, discussion today then I think hopefully will be best framed by starting with with what myeloma is all about and the various forms of it and what options we have for our respective patients. So I think one incredibly important sort of starting point um, is that um, myeloma is an incredibly heterogeneous disease and what makes it even more challenging is that it changes within a patient over time. So not only is it different between patients but it's also different within a patient over the natural history of the illness and that makes it particularly challenging for patients, families, and caregivers alike. Having said that, it's very important to understand the nature of your own individual biology in conjunction with your caregiver and to understanding where you are in the spectrum of the illness. So starting with that, there's obviously the recognition that there's this importantly defined entity of monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance, which means exactly what it says, that the M protein is discovered, but its exact significance is not clear. And over time, it may evolve into something more challenging. The good news is we're getting better and better at defining what MGUS is and what risk may come with it, and this allows us a variety of strategies in going forward and dealing with it. Now, uh, I want to especially acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Irene Gobriel, who's been a pioneer in this what we call precursor setting, where she and others have looked very hard at how we can try and head off um, these challenges going forward in terms of identifying higher-risk patients, and then with some of the newer agents that we have, um, which are much less toxic drugs we had available before, be able to try and, and, and sort of proverbially place a stitch in time to save nine. Now, high-risk MGUS is one category that is currently under evaluation, but for the majority of MGUS patients, it's simply a matter of observation carefully with your caregiver and being aware of lifestyle choices and so forth that could be very helpful in reducing stress and inflammation that may be at least as far as we know, potential drivers of the process. Smoldering myeloma is a slightly different entity in that it represents a sort of next step in the spectrum of the illness where uh, myeloma becomes a little more established but isn't nonetheless inflicting any damage to end organ structures. And what I mean by that are bones, kidneys, um, bone marrow, etc. So a patient may have an elevated number of plasma cells in the bone marrow and may have a significant protein detectable but is experiencing no ill effects from the process. 
Now, the critical thing here is understanding where in the spectrum of the smoldering picture um, you may lie. And in that context, if you have what we consider uh, uh, low or standard risk smoldering disease, it may be very appropriate to just monitor you very carefully. Sometimes we use a bone strengthener to uh, compensate for any bone uh, demineralization that may occur. Um, these are the so-called bisphosphonates, um, which may be helpful. But obviously, if you have higher risk uh, smoldering disease, which looks like it's, it's evolving into a more active process, again, a number of investigators, including Irene, are exploring uh, strategies in this setting to reverse that process using some of the exciting new biologically derived drugs that we have, such as the monoclonal antibodies, the immunomodulators, and oral proteasome inhibitors as one example as well as, as others. Um, so that's an exciting area. Now, in terms of active disease, that represents a very clear entity, and the good news there is that we've gotten much better at defining that, so we don't wait for your disease to become uh, aggressive and, and do you actual harm in the absolute sense. We kind of can predict when it starts to make you more anemic, uh, the protein can get to a higher level, the light chain can particularly escalate. There are parameters in the bone marrow as well that guide us that then tell us, whoops, we need to get going and really try and, and put a lid on the process as quickly as possible, and that's the so-called new diagnosed category with active disease where a whole host of options exist. Now, obviously, after initial treatment, after uh, intensifying therapy to maximize response and then moving to maintenance, which is now a standard of care, um, we look to maintain remission for as long as possible. And Jenny, as you alluded to, in myeloma, because treatments have gotten that much better and that much less toxic in the long term, patients are joining remissions for longer. And so there's the tantalizing hope that in the future, we may see an increasing fraction of patients in whom their disease uh, may affect, and I call, use the term very carefully, uh, a functional cure. What I mean by that is that the disease can essentially be kept in remission on a relatively uh, um, on-continuous on therapy, but essentially other problems for the patient may become more of a worry than actually the disease itself. A parallel is in prostate cancer, for example, where certain prostate cancer patients can enjoy living with a disease for many, many years and worry about different things. I hesitate to use that analogy only because I've always eternally humbled by myeloma. So I think one has to be very careful. But having said that, your point is very well taken, Jenny, that for an increasing subset of patients, a proportion of patients, long-term remissions that result in a high quality of life and continuous therapy being part of it, but nonetheless disease control for many, many years. And that, I think, is the exciting piece. Now, having said that, when disease comes back, that's defined as first relapse. And in that setting, we then start to use other treatments to bring back remission and further continue treatment, continue disease control for as long as possible. So that constitutes first relapse. Now, typically, that lasts now, thank God, because of these newer drugs that we're, that we're so fortunate to have um, for many years, or sometimes a little bit less, but sometimes many years. Um, we then sometimes inevitably see um, that the disease will come back uh, after a period of remission, after initial relapse. And that's where we move into second and third relapse and fourth relapse. And these are patients who are described as relapsed refractory or heavily relapsed, as you wrote in, in, in your program notes, Jenny. And in that setting, the challenges become very considerable because we have to then bring to bear multiple drugs typically uh, in order to bring the disease process under control.
And just to share with the audience, the reason for that is because as myeloma relapses, it becomes more and more uh, diverse in its nature, uh, its genetics become more and more unstable, and it therefore becomes more challenging to bring under control. Earlier in the disease, it can also be highly genetically varied, that's for sure. Um, for example, my superb colleague, Dr. Nikhil Munchi, has done some beautiful work genomics of myeloma and some very exciting work he's about to publish in Nature actually looking at smoldering versus active disease in partnership with our colleagues in France. But at the same time what he's shown is that you can have in your cancer as many as 5,000 mutations at the time of diagnosis and then when the disease comes back there can be as many as 12,000 mutations. And that's a big therapeutic challenge. How do we, how do we throw a net yeah, around? No kidding. Wow. So, so that's why we use multiple drugs in the um, more heavily relapse setting, and increasingly we're using multiple drugs in first relapse. And now, of course, in newly diagnosed patients, we're moving into an era of at least three drugs, sometimes four, and also we always use what I call the sort of Coast Guard, which are the bisphosphonates or the anti-bone resorptive agents like denosumab. So in initial treatment, we sort of have an Army, Navy, and Air Force, which is typically um, steroid, immunomodulator, and a proteasome inhibitor. Um, the Marines, in my view, are the antibodies. They can often be added. And then the bisphosphonate, and I mean, excuse the metaphor, but I think it's helpful, is the Coast Guard. So you have basically all your assets in place to control your disease at diagnosis. And then typically, as the disease evolves and as it unfortunately may come back over time, um, we may then use additional drugs and additional assets to bring the process under control. Now, obviously, in terms of treatment for younger patients, autologous stem cell transplant is a standard of care, and this involves using a, a very tried, true, and tested warhorse, melphalan, which we give at high dose, and in order to make that safe, we rescue it with uh, rescue the patient with autologous stem cells, and this serves the role not only of allowing the melphalan to be tolerated, but also helps reset the immune system um, within the patient, and as a result of that, the patients can enjoy some remission and some durable disease control. Now, I think it's fair to say that the role of autologous transplant is evolving, not least of which because we have such exciting other treatments, uh, which are essentially also immune-based, be they antibodies, immunomodulatory treatments, proteasome inhibitors, and so forth. And as I counsel my patients, um, for younger folks, autologous transplant is definitely a very important option, but one size does not fit all. And we're learning that stem cell transplant can work very well for some patients, but unfortunately in others it's not so good. And we're trying to figure out who benefits best from it because it's obviously uh, uh, help, very helpful in the right patient, but for a patient who may not be able to tolerate it well and may have both long-term as well as acute side effects, it can be very challenging indeed. So we're seeking to better tailor that approach in our younger patients. Um, so that, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, is a kind of walkthrough um, MGUS smoldering, newly diagnosed, first relapsed, and heavily relapsed patients, Jen. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I know in MGUS, in, in that situation, I've seen now some clinical trials actually open in that situation beyond Dr. Gobriel's P-Crowd study and even some that are considering treatment. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. And that's the MGUS high-risk group that I mentioned because in those yeah. folks, the transforming into uh, smoldering is high and then smoldering into active disease is also equally high. So for that reason, the idea is a stitch in time will truly save nine. Um, I think yeah. it's important to remember that the stage of any cancer, be it myeloma or otherwise, 
is a function of biology over time. And so essentially, if you have MGUS that's high risk, it may only be a matter of time before you become active disease in, in, a, in, a, in a relatively short order. And I think that's why I particularly applaud Irene and, and her team for the work they do in going into a space which is important to define, i.e. those folks with early, early precursor illness that may evolve. But I think it's also very important to step back and be very cognizant that the vast majority of patients with MGUS do just fine for many years. And the last thing we right. need to worry about is myeloma. Um, and this is where I love the strategy of stress reduction, you know, uh, um, weight loss, exercise, healthy diet, and so forth. And funnily enough, obviously, that has tremendous benefits um, in terms of general health anyway. And so essentially, you know, a, a healthy MGUS patient is probably healthier than, than a patient without any MGUS, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. That's a great broad overview. Thank you so much. Well, let's talk about some of the specific therapies that are coming out into the clinic because now that we have a little more expertise with them, um, let's start with the CAR-T technology because I know at uh, the most recent ASH, everyone was thrilled with these very high, you know, 90% sometimes uh, response rates in some of the early CAR-T studies. And now some uh, we're seeing that some patients are staying in remission, some patients are relapsing. So can you speak to uh, just an update on the CAR T-cell technologies, uh, the ability for patients to get into those, um, some of the new, um, uh, I guess, remission statuses that might be open for patients because the first studies were, you know, multiple lines of therapy. So when is that coming, and um, what other strategies could be used to keep people in remission, understanding that these patients that were first on the trials were heavily treated? That's a lovely question, Jen, and I think CAR-T therapy um, holds enormous promise and is very exciting um, as a forward direction um, in the immune therapy of this disease, recognizing that immune therapy is a broad category, and it doesn't just include CAR-T technology, but it includes uh, monoclonal antibodies, particularly monoclonal antibodies that build on the success of elotuzumab and, uh, very importantly, on the game-changing nature of daratumab. So I think that you know we're we're in a very exciting time because beyond these antibodies, beyond CAR T, lie you know these so-called biphenotypic or, or, or also have a term bite applied to them. Um, these biphenotypic antibodies that try to do multiple things at once, and then of course we combine those with immunomodulatory drugs, the IMIDs, which have been an immune therapy unbeknownst to us arguably for some time, uh, and um, in fact. They were classified as imids many years ago, but their immune function has really become apparent over the last decade uh, as being very, very important. And um, the maintenance with lenalidomide, for example, has borne great fruit. So I think it's important to understand that immune therapy um, has been part of the repertoire in myeloma for a long time. And in fact, autologous stem cell transplant was an immune strategy in the very beginning. Essentially, you mm-hmm. cytoreduce. Uh, uh, the tumor burden with melphalan gave back autologous stem cells that reset autologous immunity and then in fact back in the 80s uh, one of my uh, mentors a wonderful man who sadly passed away many years ago but his name is Tim McElwain he actually developed high dose melphalan and stem cell support and Tim also then developed the idea of targeting it with interferon as a strategy of keeping the disease away using an immune treatment so immune therapy Mm -hmm. in myeloma has been 
very long time, and the tantalizing clue for immune therapy came from allogeneic transplant, where we saw some stunning successes with allogeneic transplant initially. And as we broadened the approach, what we realized was allo was certainly helping a small subset of patients, but unfortunately, the majority encountered unacceptable graft-versus-host disease, um, which made the, the approach very challenging. But still, um, there are a small but real number of patients who benefit from allo uh, transplant approaches in, in the highly sort of selected and clinical study situations that we now do that. And therein lies the clue that immune therapy can work because CAR-T therapy obviously builds on that in a, in a much more um, sophisticated and clever fashion because it's, it's specific to the patient by manipulating um, the T cells ex vivo, as it were, and then reinfusing them, as you know. Um, so they target the disease, particularly with BCMA being probably one of the most exciting targets to date. CAR-T has shown phenomenal results, but I think we have to be a little bit careful because when you see results from a CAR-T trial, it has to be remembered that there's a waiting list to get into the study, um, that yeah. the results presented reflect those patients who get into the modality, who are able to receive the treatment, uh, and then you see fabulous results you know, with response rates of 90% or above. And it, it, it in no way diminishes the promise of the approach. I just think it's very important to understand that, you know, of 100 patients aligned for CAR-T, perhaps, you know, 20 or so are able to actually get into the program and those folks then benefit. And it's, it's wonderful, but it's important to note that because it, 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 it real, you realize that the, the clinical trial experience reflects that, whereas other clinical trials, for example, typically if you enter a trial, everyone is counted and even if you know treatment fails the patient within the first month, you know they're counted in in the in the in in, in the assessment. CAR T is different because of the way it's done. You can't do it that way. It doesn't in any way diminish the. It's important to understand that. So you see a response rate of around 90% is fantastic. And most recently, my colleague Dr. Nuparaje presented at ASCO um, the maturing information around the BB2121 platform, which seems to be a remarkably good one, uh, targeting BCMA. And what she showed very nicely is that response rates are dramatically high. Um, the duration of disease control unmaintained, and that's an important point, it's not maintained, um, is about a year. And that's obviously on, on average. And that's obviously remarkable because the patients are so, so ill and right. they're treated, but it's also important to recognize that they're not maintained. So I personally think that as CAR-T evolves and we can kind of integrate maintenance strategies, um, this will make a big difference to the duration of disease control, and particularly, as you point out, Jenny, as the technology is brought earlier. In our own patients, in our own program, and from, from, from sharing patients with colleagues who've gone through the, you know, who, who their patients have gone through the program, and my own patients who've been aligned for, you know, a variety of different programs in different uh, settings. My own impression of CAR-T is that um, it has great promise, and we've got a ways to go, however, but I, I think particularly the idea of um, CAR-T therapy that's designed to enhance memory, uh, CAR-T therapy that can be readily partnered with maintenance strategies, um, you know, I think these are going to be hopefully available very soon, and I would anticipate um, that, you know, whilst the protocols exist now and are obviously in overdrive, I'm really hopeful we'll see, you know, an, an approved approach to CAR-T therapy for myeloma patients in a, in a, in a year or so if, if all goes well. It's important to note, though, in, in lymphoma and leukemia where CAR-Ts are approved, um, the benefits are striking. But just as 
we think about allotransplant. Allotransplanted in leukemia and lymphoma is curative. Um, allotransplant in myeloma generally, unfortunately, hasn't been. And so in CAR-T therapy, in a sort of parallel fashion, I think we need to realize it may prove challenging to control disease over the long term unless we use really clever maintenance strategies. And also, finally, that CAR-T therapy um, you know, obviously has to be geared up in a way that will allow us to make it more available to more patients. And that, that's not a, not a small challenge. No, not not at all, and it's very because it's all personalized. It's your own cells, and they're then they're engineered. So a few questions about what you said about CAR T cell. So you said talking about maintaining the response. Do you are you thinking about doing that with the CAR T, like uh, additional infusions, or are you thinking about um, using standard myeloma drugs as maintenance therapy following, or um, what do you mean by the the you know maintenance therapy? Um, uh, I, I personally uh, think in terms of a variety of, of strategies that may be helpful there. Um, an obvious one would be taking immunomodulatory drugs that are so successful post-order grafting and in non-transplant settings as well as maintaining patients. An obvious place would be after CAR-T therapy would be to give you know, a maintenance strategy uh, as long as it could be done safely um, to a CAR-T patient to maintain their remission. Um, there are a variety of CAR-T strategies that are also looking to build the CAR-T platform. In other words, that it's, it's not just what, it's a BCMA target, but it's enhanced in some way. And you can think even uh, hypothetically of, you know, different being partnered together. Again, I think the fields are very, very promising, and I'm very hopeful for it. I think what it's important, what I share with my patients at least, is to recognize its promise, but also recognize some of the challenges. And I think that um, what I'm particularly excited by is the fact that if it's brought earlier uh, and can be shown to endure more durable disease control, particularly with maintenance strategies, it may become something that we use in a much more widespread fashion over time. Mm-hmm. And when, as you looked at these early results coming out of the CAR T therapies, why are people relapsing? What's happening? Is it T cell exhaustion, or what else is what else is happening? Well, I, maybe you can explain. But, yeah, I, I have know. to. Pre- I, no, no, of course, Jen. I have to preface this by saying I don't consider myself a CAR T expert by any means. I've got wonderful colleagues who lead the charge there in our own program, specifically my partner, Dr. Nikhil Munshi. Um, but I will share with you that, um, you know, there are a variety of patterns of, of, of treatment failure. Um, and I think at the end of the day, um, we just have to recognize that myeloma can be highly resistant to these strategies in the same way as it proved resistant in the allogeneic setting whilst we were able to cure patients with leukemia and lymphoma. I will stress, though, that in CAR-T it doesn't in any way diminish um, its, its promise because, to your point, there may be opportunities to reinfuse more T cells. There may be opportunities to augment T cell function, not just with immunomodulatory drugs, but arguably with other strategies um, such as checkpoints and others, which may be able to help, recognizing that we've learned some tough lessons with checkpoint inhibitors that you have to be very careful yes, about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, I mean, it's a new technology, so of course you as researchers are going to be learning over time. Um, what to do and how to um, manipulate that, and it's a great beginning. And I, I'm just excited about you know what will happen in the future to to watch it. But I appreciate the update. Now you talked about bi-specific antibodies. Maybe you want to give a short overview of that, 
And then um, I think I'd like to interject the monoclonal antibodies and what you referred to a little bit earlier after that. Jen, and I, I would completely agree with how you, you uh, beautifully phrased the CAR-T platform, so uh, ditto, completely agree with you. Um, so in terms of bispecifics, obviously these are relatively early in development. They're nowhere near as advanced as, for example, um, uh, our work has been with uh, BCMA-targeting antibodies with um, immunotoxins uh, or with, um, you know, for example, our antibodies like um, essentially uh, daratumumab, isotuximab, elatuzumab, and others. Um, the bispecifics, though, offer this opportunity to capture two sorts of function as we engage tumor cells and so enhance therapeutic indices accordingly, and the scientific promise behind them is real. I think the way to think of them in the simplest terms, just to make them understandable, is that they'll capture several components of the immune system to optimally target a tumor cell, uh, and they'll do it as one antibody as opposed to multiple. Um, and I think that's what makes them very attractive. Um, I think that the safety profile from them appears to be really quite good, and um, some of the early bispecific antibody data in, in phase one has been remarkable, and, and arguably, you know, not, not the sort of 90% response rates necessarily of CAR-T, but not too far behind. Um, which is great news because these are off-the-shelf antibodies. They're not the sort of thing where you have to wait, uh, you know, uh, a month or so to get your car, um, or, or less perhaps, depending on the technology. But nonetheless, you can simply use them off the shelf. So they have a real promise of doing that. Durability of uh, response and, and progression-free survival data are still rather immature in that regard. So I think we have to be to wait and see. But the early data on bispecifics is very promising. And importantly, the tolerability appears good. There is some evidence of the same kind of immune reactions that we see with CAR-T, the so-called CRS, cytokine release syndrome. This is very important for patients to know. It's not a, it's not a trivial side effect. It's a, it's a function of the immune system really revving up. And generally speaking, it's manageable. And in the CAR-T setting, they've gotten much better at managing it. But unfortunately, it can be quite severe from time to time, and that requires real expertise in handling it. Um, having said that, uh, it's a sign that the treatment's doing its job. Um, but like all side effects, you know, you have to be very careful. Um, but bispecifics, I think, are very promising. And you mentioned earlier monoclonal antibodies, you know, daratumumab and elotuzumab, and now you have more expertise using them in the clinic, multi-year expertise, and you mentioned that others are being developed. Do you want to uh, expand on that and why you think those are so promising and now how they're being used earlier in the clinic? Absolutely. Well, I think... You know, talking of the other antibodies, I think it's very important to recognize some of the promising data around BCMA targeting antibodies in which, you know, a chemotherapeutic is, target, is, is partnered with the antibody. And the specific example of that is the 916 antibody um, currently under development by um, the GSK team. This antibody is a real, uh, uh, it's been very impressive, actually, in terms of its activity in very refractory patients. And it's very clever because what it does, it targets BCMA, um, it delivers its payload, and then when it gets inside the myeloma cell, it also triggers additional antigenicity by the myeloma, we think, that further activates the immune system against the tumor. So um, the 916 molecule has shown great promise in that space. I think separately, um, we've seen a number of other BCMA-targeted antibodies by 
different uh, sponsors coming um, through the pipelines that look really promising as well. So those are antibodies to which a chemotherapeutic is attached and to which they go for BCMA, which appears to be a very important. This is the so-called B-cell maturation antigen, which is highly expressed by myeloma and a very important functional target. Um, in that spirit, there's, uh, as you've got on your list here, April, which seems to be part of that pathway as well, and that's particularly exciting as well because the idea is there that by targeting April, and again, not to confuse everyone with lots of acronyms, but April is a linked pathway to BCMA that's very important in myeloma biology, and that too appears to be highly targetable. To your question, Jen, though, about the other antibodies that we've got in the repertoire that are really much well established, um, obviously we have daratumumab targeting CD38. And as I mentioned earlier, that's been truly a game changer in terms of outcome. It's really um, transformed the relapsed refractory space for our patients for the better, uh, and it's become very widely used now both in the United States and in Europe. Um, I think that the, the, the word of caution, though, is unfortunately daratumumab does fail. Um, there are patients in whom it runs out of benefit for, and there are patients in whom it doesn't work. And as a result of that, um, they face a major challenge because once daratumumab has failed a patient, um, you know, it, it, it's a particularly challenging space. Um, the good news is there are other antibodies in the strategies designed that can actually help us in that regard. I do want to mention elotuzumab because I think it's an important antibody that, given the success of daratumumab has sometimes been a little bit forgotten, and that, I think, is, is, is a mistake. Zelo has its own uh, definite role. Ilotuzumab is a true immunoadjuvant. It stimulates um, the immune system against the myeloma through so-called natural killer cells, which we realize are really important to fight myeloma. And it does so through a funky pathway called SLAMF7, signaling lymphocyte-activating uh, molecule F7, um, apologies for these funky ac acronyms, but I think they, they're mm, just... Okay. <laughs> but SLAM F7 has the right uh, ring to it because basically what ELO does is come along, activate the natural killer cell, and SLAM F7 is also attached to the myeloma. But unlike... Um, the SLAMF7 receptor in a natural killer cell, which is activated via a protein called EAT2. Um, basically, the EAT2 protein is absent in the myeloma cell. And so what that means is that the natural killer cell is activated, as the protein suggests, to eat the cell it's supposed to. Uh, the myeloma is tagged and, 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 and targeted to be eaten, and the natural killer cell comes in and does its, uh, uh, its work. And all of this is turned into overdrive when you combine it with immunomodulatory treatment. And we've had some remarkable results combining elotuzumab not only with lenalidomide originally, but most importantly with pomalidomide. Pomalidomide is possibly more of a natural killer cell activator than lenalidomide is. And in that context, results with pomalidomide combined with elotuzumab in patients who are refractory um, and therefore in need of an effective treatment have been remarkable. And my colleague Thanos Dimopoulos presented an oral session at EHA on our behalf where he showed results from our multi-center international trial where we looked at pomalidomide and DEX versus pomalidomide, DEX, and ELO and showed that for heavily pretreated refractory patients, the addition of ELO to pomalidomide and dexamethasone improved progression-free survival by about six months, which may not sound like a great deal, but as an average, that's impressive. And most importantly, um, it's a platform for future success. So, you know, for example... Would you ever use pomalidomide first? 
in that situation if you're getting such good results, or would you always start with the Revlimid and then if somebody feels that, then move to the pomalidomide? Well, that's a great question, and I would I would simply say to you that pomalidomide is best used in the relapse setting for the variety of reasons. One, lenalidomide is an absolutely uh, effective and, and highly um, uh, uh, um, validated image. It's been shown time and time again to be successful um, in myeloma, and it's been associated with substantial survival benefit. For example, lenalidomide maintenance post-transplant engenders around two and a half years of survival benefit, and there's very few drugs that can, can fall into that category. So I would be very reluctant to say LEN should be replaced by POM up front when you have such successful data from LEN. But I would say to you that POM is a great next step if LEN fails. And this data with uh, POM-ELO I think is particularly attractive because you might say to yourself, for example, if a patient receives a DARA-based therapy um, earlier in their treatment course, and unfortunately, the DARA-based treatment then fails them. You know, arguably, you could come in with POM, ELO, and probably need other drugs too, to be fair, such as bortezomib or a similar proteasome inhibitor like carfilzomib or something along those lines. In other words, you might want to bring in additional drugs um, that, that would help you get response. Uh, in the proteasome inhibitor family, we not only have, obviously, carfilzomib, which is a very potent, effective drug, but we also have uh, exazomib, um, which is an oral pill, very well tolerated generally, uh, and that's another uh, opportunity uh, or another option for patients after um, initial treatments have failed. Can I ask a question about the monoclonal antibodies? Um, as as we were um, working to fund different um, programs, we ended up funding a CAR-T CAR cell research that was going after two targets, BCMA and CS1 together. And I look at these monoclonal antibodies, and now there's one by, you know, this GSK drug that's being developed towards BCMA. And we have daratumumab targeting CD38, and we have elotuzumab tar targeting CS1. Would you ever see these being combined? Because right now it doesn't seem like anyone ever uses, would ever use daratumumab and elotuzumab together. Yeah, I, I, I think, well, obviously CS1 is, is the other word for SLAMF7. I, I think that's a great point. I think the thing about DARA is that its effects on natural killer cells are a little bit less clear than ELO is. ELO is pure on the CAR-T, oh, sorry, on pure on the natural killer side of things, or rather pure, that's exactly what it targets. Um, DARA may have less of a, of a stimulating effect to, to natural killers than, than, than ELO does, so the rationale of combining the two is very promising. I think obviously we want to see results of studies to do that. I know studies exploring this are, are, are planned or underway. Yeah, well, it's pretty early with, with just that um, GSK drug being really early in clinical trials also. And can you go ahead and explain April a little bit better? Because I think many people have not heard of it. They don't understand what it does, um, including me. <laughs> You know, it's, it's complicated biology, but I think the way to think about it is it's a pathway that's very important in myeloma biology, and it's linked to BCMA, and that it may be just as important to target as BCMA, and really what may be very uh, relevant is targeting both, sort of building off what you talked about earlier about CS1 and CD38. Um, so I think that uh, as an opportunity, we, we, for example, are participating in a clinical trial looking at April as a target, and the preclinical work, I especially want to acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Yuzu Tai, in a laboratory setting, who's done some beautiful work with April, um, showing that it's a very important pathway in myeloma. So I think for patients, it's, it's sometimes it can get very confusing with all these 
these names and targets and so forth. And I think it's uh, relevant to say that it's in um, the BCMA space. It's related to BCMA. It remains a very important, uh, uh, it, it is a very, not remains, it is a very important target, we think. And strategies going after it are now under evaluation with, uh, you know, hopefully early results will, 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 will reflect the promise we see from the laboratory. Um, I, I think the important message for patients overall is that BCMA, April, CD38, um, uh, uh, um, CS1 or SLAMF7 are all important targets. What folks need to know is there are a variety of new drugs going after these. Um, for example, in the CD38 space, on the back of daratumumab is coming a new CD38 targeting antibody, isatuximab. And that actually is a little different to DARA. It has different characteristics clinically, uh, and it has different side effects clinically, and it may also have different effects in terms of therapeutic uh, uh, differences because it targets the apoptotic pathway for killing myeloma cells more than other, more more than some of the immune effectors that uh, DARA does. Um, and as a result of that, um, we're able to um, to to exploit that potentially as a next. Uh, antibody in the CD38 family to, 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 to use. So I think the good news for patients is multiple antibodies, um, multiple strategies, all with the goal of overcoming this challenge of resistance that can emerge over time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful. And I don't want you to feel rushed because I'm happy to stay and <laughs> to, to, to continue because we still want to hear from you on um, lots of additional topics. Maybe um, we talk about Selenexor and Venetoclax next because those are a little bit, seem like they're further along in the clinic or in clinical trials anyway, and you already have quite a few results back from some of those. Yes, no, I'm delighted to um, for, for you and the listeners, Jen. Um, so let, let's perhaps touch first on venetoclax because I think um, that's one that is really, um, you know, a, 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 a very exciting new development. It's just a pill being developed primarily in leukemia because it works on the BCL2 target. And what uh, venetoclax has been shown to do is, is really you know, deliver benefit in, in the leukemia setting and probably will be FDA approved for that um, relatively soon in, in a variety of different uh, leukemias, as, as you know. In myeloma, it, it's been really interesting because the original goal was to go after the 1114 mutation that exists in an important subset of patients, and the data there are certainly very promising. But what's been realized is you don't just have to have 1114 to benefit from venetoclax, particularly when you combine it with proteasome inhibitors like uh, bortezomib. Uh, and for that matter, other ones that are now under study. There was lovely data at ASCO on combining venetoclax with carfilzomib. So I think that uh, venetoclax mm, is in advance because it is, um, it, it, it's a very well-tolerated pill in my experience, uh, and I've been now using it for a little while, and it's, it's obviously off-label or in the context of clinical trials. And I would say that... Um, it's generally well tolerated, uh, and, 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 and frankly, I think it's an important adjunct. The dose in myeloma is being explored, uh, and you know you go from 50 up to 400 milligrams a day, but some studies now are looking at higher doses between 400 and 800 a day, and that's a lot, but it, but it does seem to be well tolerated, so, or generally speaking, well tolerated. So I think venetoclax is very exciting, and I think we'll see lots of new information about that. Um, the studies have been led by, uh, by my colleague, Shachi Kumar, uh, in, at Mayo, and my, my own, uh, uh, my, my partner here at Dana-Farber, Jacob Laubach, is uh, embracing a number of the trials here together 
together with others, um, where we're looking at it with um, venetoclax combined with other drugs, but also, excitingly, venetoclax with exazomib, for example, which gives us an all-oral approach uh, in patients, oh, nice. which is... Interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. This is an MMRC trial, um, which uh, Shaji's leading, and, and we're as part of the MMRC, we're, 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 we're obviously partnering uh, uh, on that study. Um, so it's an exciting um, a new approach. Um, so that's venetoclax. Selenexor is quite different. It's also a pill, but it targets specifically a brand new area, which is the selective uh, uh, export, uh, well, it is a selective inhibitor of nuclear export proteins. Nuclear export proteins are absolutely vital uh, in tumor biology and certainly critical in myeloma biology um, to the way the cancer cell functions. And the so-called impact of, uh, of a sign of a selective inhibitor of nuclear export proteins um, is, is quite profound preclinically. Uh, and Selenexor constitutes a first-in-class oral um, selective inhibitor of nuclear export protein. And basically, um, as a single agent combined with steroid, um, appears to be uh, quite active, even in very refractory patients. Um, the challenge for it is actually uh, um, uh, its, its, its tolerability GI toxicity in particular that can be associated with its use and fatigue. But the very good news is that it's gotten a lot more manageable with uh, dose adjustment, schedule change. And funny enough, when you combine uh, Selenexor with a proteasome inhibitor, in particular Voltezomib, um, the side effect profile is, 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 is encouragingly favorable. So I, I think we're very pleased okay. with yeah, yeah, it's going very well. Uh, that's the so-called Boston study, um, and that's going very well where we're looking at the combination of Selenexor with bortezomib and dexamethasone versus uh, a, a, the, the standard approach in that setting. But I, I did want to mention the so-called STORM study, which is looking at the effect of, um, of, of Selenexor alone with dexamethasone and relapsed refractory disease, and that's been led by my colleague Sundar Jagannath from Mount Sinai, and Sundar's shown beautiful data there where it's quite active even in the most refractory patients. Um, and so I think it's, it's very exciting and it's a completely new pathway. So I think it's really interesting, Jen, because um, as we focus on immune therapy, and I think rightly so, being an incredibly important new target, it's also important to remember these other targets because, you know, just as venetoclax is showing great promise, so Selenexor is uh, in, in the same space uh, as a, a quote-unquote new target. Um, and in that same spirit, it's worth mentioning to the audience that uh, at our own center, for example, we're looking at a new uh, novel uh, targeted cytotoxic called melflufen. And this sounds, you know, something new, something old. Well, in a sense, it's old because it's derived from melphalan, but it's actually very new because it's very different to melphalan. It targets uh, it's a true alkylator, but it's an alkylator that's highly targeted and designed to be selectively uh, and preferentially held in the myeloma cell versus other tissues. Um, it's almost sort of, a, you know, it's taken up by the cell and kept in the cell because myeloma uniquely is enriched for peptidase, which converts the tumor, uh, sorry, the anti, that converts the prodrug into the active moiety. And the, basically the, um, the melflufen itself then just sort of circulates otherwise and other cells don't hang on to it in the same way as myeloma cells do. Uh, and it's a new idea, but it's really um, bearing fruit. 
uh, in terms of what we've seen in terms of activity. Uh, and it seems to be working when all other drugs fail patients as well, in the same way as both uh, Selenexor and, for that matter, Venetoclax have as well. And what stage of clinical trials is that being used in right now? It's very similar to, to Selenexor. Selenexor is coming out of phase two uh, and in phase three, and uh, melflufen is in the same category. It's in phase two and in phase three. Mm, interesting. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing that because I didn't, um, I didn't have that on my radar. That's really interesting. Give you a little bit of background. It's originally from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. That's where the science was done, uh, and I, we've been very fortunate. My colleague, Dr. Daminda Chauhan, has done the preclinical work here at Dana Farber. Uh, you know, with uh, with with uh, with Ken Anderson's my 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 mentor's partnership with Ken Anderson um, and, and the lab team, who also, of course, Ken has been the. Um, the mentor and guide to tie and all the monoclonal antibody work I just touched on as well. Um, and with, with uh, uh, the lab partnership, we then brought it forward into the clinic. And uh, we're very pleased with how it's uh, performed, recognizing that any drug has side effects. But the, the side effect profile, interestingly, of melflufen, apart from suppression of blood counts, appears to be uh, generally very manageable. Unlike melphalan, where you, for example, can get mouth sores, diarrhea, mucositis, and so right. on, don't see that with melflufen because of this unique mechanism where it's kept by the tumor cell and it's not, you know, it's, it's not held onto um, by by normal tissue. And it would replace the melphalan or um, very intelligent as a question. simple transplant drug. That's a very intelligent question, Jen, and that's possibly yes. My colleague Sergio Geralt in uh, Memorial uh, is looking at an idea just that because obviously one of the dangers mm -hmm. of Transplant is, it, it, you know, is bystander tissue damage, and one of the most challenging is, of course, secondary leukemia risk and MDS and so on. And perhaps, and right. we don't know, but perhaps uh, um, melflufen by being preferentially taken up by the myeloma, you know, doesn't then have the same long-term consequences uh, to, to stem cells. But we don't know that, so I want to be careful. I certainly don't want to get ahead of ourselves there. Um, but but that's obviously a very interesting area of study. Right, that would be revolutionary for a transplant if that's the case, if that ends up happening. Yes, I think so. I think in fairness to transplant, that would be fabulous. I think also, though, what's going to be revolutionary in that space of the same principle is what we were touching on earlier, which is CAR-T, you know, where, cellular, where essentially CAR-T is seeking to do the same thing without necessarily the same amount of chemotherapy. Um, so it would be very interesting to see how those two approaches pan out. And it may I, I'm quite sure we'll meet both. I don't think it'll be one versus the other. But I think at the same time, it'll be much better to have more options than, than, than than less. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I've heard a lot about um, imaging or MRIs, PET scans, being really used as a prognostic tool to help assess um, disease status, kind of like we're using minimal residual disease testing or trying to detect how much myeloma people still have. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I think it's a fabulous approach uh, in, a, in a clinical trial setting, MRD testing. I think it helps us with the regulatory challenges of getting drugs approved as quickly as we can by showing clinical benefits. So I think that MRD is a great uh, research and regulatory uh, tool because what it allows is us to get a insights to the future um, in terms of clinical benefit. I think MRD testing 
in regular clinical practice is something we need to be a little bit more careful about because there's a lovely saying in medicine that a fool with a new tool is still a fool. Um, you know, until you really, <laughs> mm-hmm. really uh, what, 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 what the implications are of MRD on therapeutic choices, um, I think one has to be careful. Um, I mean, for example, We've shown that in our randomized studies uh, of um, transplant patients, you know, transplant early versus transplant eight, if you achieve a very high quality response, regardless of whether you have a transplant or not, and in particular if you're MRD negative, you do just as well whether you have a transplant or whether you keep it in reserve. And that's incredibly helpful to know. Mm -hmm. However, what what we do know, though, is that in our early studies, patients who are MRD negative within three years, about 20% of them have relapsed. So, uh, you know, how reliable then is the tool in the long term? Some of the more high sensitivity tools that we now have in MRD, I hope will get us there. And again, I want to especially acknowledge, you know, the the numerous investigators involved in MRD who've done such a great job. But I, I think we also have to be careful and say, well, look, you know, it's great for clinical trials. It's great for getting drugs approved fast, uh, or faster, I should say. Um, but perhaps in everyday clinical practice, we need to be just a bit more careful, a bit, a bit, a bit, maybe wait a little bit and see how all the data unfolds before it becomes something that we use, you know, routinely in, in every setting. Because, you know, I'm a bit struck by the fact that I have patients who are MRD positive, essentially. They're VGPR patients who are in very good response for literally a decade, and they do just fine. I'm equally struck that I have patients who have gone for complete remission, achieved an MRD functional equivalent, or they've been actually MRD negative uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the context of, um, uh, uh, you know, of a clinical trial, and their disease has come back with a vengeance um, very quickly. So I, I think one has to just be aware that, that understanding how you adapt treatment to MRD testing remains something that's in evolution so i think some care around that needs to be uh, need, needs to be uh, is is probably wise yes it's myeloma is so tricky and what about imaging as a tool well imaging is great and that really, i love the question because you know mrd testing without imaging is a bit uh, a bit sort of you know it's only half of the story for want of a better word i mean it's all phrase um you can test for MRD, and if it's negative, that's great news. Um, the other thing is that um, uh, the uh, other piece of the imaging is critical um, because that really does does help us understand. Because remember, multiple myeloma is called that for a reason. You can have lumps and bumps of it hiding that you can't necessarily see just on a blood test or on a uh, you know on, on bone marrow. So I think imaging is very important. PET CT in particular may be helpful, although again, it's not one versus the other; it's the whole constellation. And I'm also reminded of a wonderful comment that I got recently from a very uh, dear friend and, and patient colleague, uh, Jim O'Mell, who's a very remarkable man, who's a physician patient and a great advocate in myeloma. And Jim also isn't crazy about the term MRD, as in minimal residual disease negative, because no one quite understands what that means. And I, I think measurable residual disease is an almost better term, and I love Jim's suggestion, as it was his, obviously, of measurable residual disease, MRD meaning that versus minimal disease, um, because I think mm-hmm. it then imaging because imaging obviously is a measure or provides a measure of what's going on. So so I think, um, you know, as part of measurable residual disease assessment, um, imaging plus minimal residual disease assessment with marrows makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Jim is a wonderful, wonderful advocate for all of us. Um, he's terrific and a good friend. <laughs> so my last question, I guess, would be about um, what progress is being made in myelo- the genetics of myeloma. I know the COMPASS study um, by the MMRF did a lot to identify different um, patterns and evolutions and things like that. Um, what else are we learning about myeloma genome, genomics, and how do we put that together and give a 360-degree view of the patient and not just look at genetics or put it in context, I guess? Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good point. I think that what's true um, uh, um, is that uh, um, I, I, the 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 um, the, the issue is that the, the tumor is part of the story. Um, the microenvironment, the neighborhood, and the immune milieu is the rest of the story. And I think that as we think about genetics, we have to think in those terms that it's not just the tumor, it's the host. And I think that um, that becomes a very important part of understanding the complexity. And as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, um, how the disease evolves um, over time changes within a patient as much as it does um, between patients. And I think that that's, that's a critical point, and it's a great question you raised, Jenny, because it, it allows us to, 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 to think in those terms. And it's, it's all uh, um, very important to recognize that therapeutics can have an impact on that. And what I mean by that is, that, and this is a, you know, a, a concept that's not always um, uh, um, shared, that you know we're blessed with the antibodies, we're blessed with immune therapies, we're blessed with imids, proteasome inhibitors, new drugs, small molecules, and so forth. And therefore, we have to be very uh, therapeutic choices that we don't just um, you know obviously eliminate disease, but we do leave give our patients the best quality of life. And by that, I mean that their host milieu is also preserved optimally. And that is very important because at the end of the day, you know, they, this impacts directly on how patients do. Um, if the immune system of a patient is well-preserved, if their organ function is well-preserved, if the treatment they have, um, you know, maintains a homeostasis with their disease, even if they're not MRD negative, um, isn't that good? And I think that needs to be better understood because, um, as I said earlier, in the context of transplant, there are certain patients who benefit from it and do extremely well. And there are others who unfortunately run into real difficulties. And we probably need to recognize the importance of that because, for example, in our trials, we're showing that the ability to keep maintenance going after transplant is different to those who don't necessarily get transplanted. It's actually generally easier to maintain patients who don't necessarily have a transplant first and keep it in reserve. However, of course, whether they benefit more from the transplant being early versus late in the context of disease reduction is, a, is the other aspect to think about. So to your point, um, this idea of understanding tumor and host, understanding the complexities of the patient's milieu, immunological and otherwise, is a, is a very important area of research. Yeah, I, that's why this disease is just so complicated. And um, I know we've talked about a lot of uh, things that are um, also complicated, but uh, this is why I suggest people go and talk to people like you for their care because 
There's such a depth of expertise. It's just stunning. Oh, I do want to leave some time for caller questions, if that's okay with you. Um, we have a caller question at 366-0098, and we'll start with your question in a second. But if you do have a question for Dr. Richardson, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. Okay, so we'll start with caller at 366-0098. Go ahead with your question. I did not pose a question. Thank you. Oh, okay. Sorry. You were showing up there as having one. Um, caller at 847-5748. Go ahead with your question. I did not pose a question. Thank you. Oh, okay. Sorry. Can you hear me? Is this caller at 847-5748? Yes. Go ahead with your question. Oh yes, hi, hi, Dr. Richardson. This is Adrian. Uh, it was uh, wonderful to hear your update. It's uh, probably the most um, lucid and eloquent um, update uh, I've heard in a while. I actually have two questions. Uh, the first one is, what is your experience with um, using DARA in combination with alalidomide and DEX in a post-transplant setting uh, for maintenance? And um, my, my second question is a bit more philosophical. There's some research um, inspired by uh, evolutionary theory arguing that um, uh, attacking um, myeloma with uh, all the armamentarium um, is probably not the best um, um, uh, strategy because then the, uh, uh, the uh, clones that are more resistant and um, um, more um, um, active will, will, will then... Um, uh, essentially, give them a chance to um, uh, overcome the evolutionary battle by uh, by diminishing all the more um, um, all the clones that are more susceptible to treatment. Um, and that's also so. Basically, the, the argument would be that don't hit myeloma with all you've got. Uh, try to maintain some form of equilibrium in which um, the really aggressive clones uh, do not have a chance to proliferate. That's also somewhat consistent with your clinical experience you talked about us patients that live uh, a long time in VGPR as opposed to patients that uh, achieve spectacular results initially but then, but then relapse. So I uh, guess the philosophical question is where, do you, where are you um, on, on that um, on the spectrum of uh, real aggressive treatment up front um, versus um, um, aggressive but not uh, overwhelming treatment uh, w- with the hope of maintaining a really a long-term um, equilibrium or meta meta stable equilibrium between the various clones um adrian this is so nice to hear your voice and thank you for your very kind comments and thank you for your very intelligent questions uh, as always um so jen it's my privilege to be part of the team looking after adrian and he's an absolutely super person and a, a great great patient partner thank you uh, thank you much. No, no, it's true, Adrian, absolutely. Um, you, you touched on some critical points, and I think that um, the daratumumab question is really interesting. So let's start with that one, then we'll move into the next part of it. Um, Dara, as I mentioned earlier, has been a, it's just changed the therapeutic landscape in myeloma. It's really, I would argue, been our sort of functional equivalent of rituxan uh, as it's been used in the lymphoma space. 
Um, the thing is that once DARA unfortunately fails a patient, then we're kind of in a challenging space. Um, and I think that the maintenance strategies with DARA are very important to study. I think they could dramatically enhance outcome, and the trials would suggest, for example, Castor and Pollux would suggest that long-term use of DARA is feasible and in the relapse setting clearly results in clinical benefits. So I think you know, it, there, there's a very strong argument for looking at DARA-based therapy um, as a part of a continuous therapy strategy. But I think in the early newly diagnosed post-transplant setting, um, we have to be a little bit careful and wait for the results of our clinical trials to be very careful, uh, sorry, to be, to be sure about how those are placed. The reason why is DARA obviously is a CD38 targeting antibody, and obviously CD38 is a stem cell marker. So we have to particularly post-transplant, I think, see how the information pans out so far in studies like Casapia, which is a superb effort led by my colleagues in France under the auspices of Philippe Moreau and others, has been shown to be really quite successful and quite safe so far, which is great news. Um, but obviously we've got other trials ongoing that, that we hope to get more information. In our own uh, alliance group, we have uh, the Griffin trial led by my colleague Peter Voorhees has done a fantastic job with this, which is sort of currently ongoing in, the, in transplant patients to see how uh, uh, DARA behaves. So I think we need to be a little cautious about saying, you know, what happens in situation X means it's going to be just as good in situation A, because obviously there's B, C, D, and E between. Um, I think we just have to see how that all pans out. But so far, so good regarding daratumumab's role as a continuous therapy agent. The challenge for me personally in the clinic right now, Adrian, is when DARA fails a patient, then things can get very challenging. And I think that's just something to, to bear in mind. It doesn't mean you keep it necessarily in reserve for everyone, but it does mean that you have to think rationally about sequencing because um, to your next point, which is I think such an important one, the evolutionary philosophical question, I think it, it dovetails very nicely with what you've just asked about DARA, because the question then becomes, do you use everything up front that's best, Are you, or, or, or do you adopt a certain amount of therapeutic parsimony um, in order to make sure you've got guns in reserve if, uh, if things fail? I think that's an incredibly important question, and we're studying it and trying to better understand it. In the clinic now, tend to use my clinical experience and a very holistic view of the patient to make that call um, because I'm very struck that I have patients in my practice, to your exact point, who are doing very well on relatively minimal therapy over many years. And I'm equally struck that multiple drugs thrown at patients with an aggressive phenotype, um, you know, unfortunately sometimes fail and those, that can be very difficult to control. I think we're getting better at this, though, and I especially acknowledge um, colleagues who are really pioneers in the field of genomics in understanding who does badly and who you need to attack with full court press. Um, and when I mean it, who to attack with full court press, I'm talking about their disease, obviously, not the poor patient. And I right. think the best example there is, is deletion 17P. Uh, to use a very high-level example, DEL17P is a real menace, and there are different varieties of it. But when it's around, in my experience, you have to be very thoughtful and that doesn't mean that you transplant everyone with deletion 17P because, in fact, P53 mutation, as you know, Adrian, from our discussions, kind of enriches um, for resistance to alkylator therapy and chemotherapy in particular. So I think that we have to be a little careful about what we put into that mix. But certainly, if I'm looking at a deletion 17 uh, disease, I will think very creatively 
EI in the mix, an IMID in the mix, and an antibody. We've also got HDACs that are very effective against 17P mutation. HDACs are with the approved drug being panabinostat and a variety of others under study that I think you know have real promise as well. And the reality is that you want to put all of these sorts of strategies together um, to try and target something as ominous as 17P. 11.14, of course, gives us the option of, of, of venetoclax, which is a gentler treatment. Uh, and I use that as an example um, because it's an example you might, you know, have a better biology, arguably, although 11.14, it's important to note, can be expressed in plasma cell leukemia, which means it's a different animal there. And I use it as an example to as a teaching point that a mutation in a particular setting may be very different in another setting. So 11.14 in, in plasma cell leukemia means a very different thing than 11.14 means in someone else. So to your philosophical point about evolutionary pressure, I would say it's extremely complicated, and the more you know, the more there is to know. The good news is that we're better understanding it, we're better understanding the implication of clonal tiding and um, the idea of clonal heterogeneity, and the real the really important message for everyone on the call is thank God for the treatment options we have, which mean that we can be more tailored in what we do. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we have one more. We have a hard stop in just a few minutes. We have one more caller question, 949-5572. Go ahead with your question. Um, hi, this has been one of the, probably one of the most informative shows I've listened to. And... Um, how long, Jenny, how long has it taken you to get up to speed on myeloma? Uh, a long time, many years. <laughs> yeah, so for uh, the average patient and caregiver, we're completely lost, and a lot of this information is, um, is hard to uh, understand and put in context. Um, what other tools or ideas do you have for us to get up to speed and so we can get... Um, be able to better understand the context of this content as it relates to care. Well, I think what we could provide, especially for a show like this, Dr. Richardson, is links to kind of a thesaurus. So as people go through the transcript, um, they'd be able to link out to the variety of things. It's tough when we're doing a show like this, especially because we're covering so many topics in a very short period of time. Um, so I think we'll provide that for this show in particular. No, I'm, that, thank that would be a, that would no, be an no, amazing resource. Yeah. So I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I just want to say thank you so much for your kind comments. I think that again, as uh, to touch on the philosophy of what you're you're kindly pointing out, I, I think that the benefit is that we are very fortunate to have very strong patient advocacy in myeloma, which has made a great difference um, from the IMF, MMRF, to Leukemia Lymphoma Society, also to. Um, uh, Jenny's efforts and, and other groups. It's been really lovely to see that. And I think that, as Jenny, I think, captured it perfectly, that given the complexity of this disease, not only between patients but within patients, um, the ability to have access to the latest information and the, um, you know, the, 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 the complexity of any individual patient's situation is really critical. And I think that... Um, uh, that's why I would put in a big plug for, you know, if your resources allow, being able to come to specialist centers because it, it can be very helpful. And I think all the email tools and all the sort of, you know, uh, uh, literature that's available, there's nothing better than being able to sit down face-to-face -face with a person and, and have time to, to go over these things. 
Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, no, it's absolutely, yeah. And the Myeloma crowd just do an amazing job and been listening since the beginning, and I've seen the progress and the knowledge and the growth that, that uh, and this amazing resource that's available to patients. So thank you both for your efforts, and I'll sign off. My, my privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Richardson, um, I completely agree. I always suggest that patients see a myeloma specialist just for this very reason. The disease is complicated, and um, and you really need people who are seeing hundreds of cases per year and running these clinical trials on it because you're seeing both sides. You're seeing the science and you're seeing the, um, the research and the clinical application of that research. So thank you so much for participating today. I apologize for our technical issues we had at the beginning, but you were stellar as usual, and uh, we just really appreciate your efforts on behalf of us all. Thank you so much. Well, well, Jenny, Jenny, please. It's truly my privilege, and it's it's the, the you know it's my honour to help, frankly. And I just want to acknowledge your work, and just say thank you for all you do, and and thank you in particular to all the people on the call taking time out of their Friday um, to listen. Uh, it's been a true pleasure, and, and look forward to helping going forward. Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. Uh, We encourage you to tune in next time to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.